This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 149, entitled, Jesus Speaks to the Churches of Asia Minor, Part 3 of 3. I want to remind you that the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I will be your host. Before we get started, I want to call your attention to a new podcast produced by the UCA. And the UCA stands for the Unitarian Christian Alliance. If you are a biblical Unitarian, or if you're interested in hearing more about the Christian communities that are being formed around the key truths of the one God identified as the Father alone, and Jesus Christ as the human Messiah, then I strongly suggest that you head to iTunes and subscribe to the Unitarian Christian Alliance podcast. Their content is excellent. And so I I had better step up my game because they are doing some very good stuff over there. So go check out the UCA podcast. They are good friends of mine and you will not regret it. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian podcast, we will conclude our study of the Christology revealed in the letters to the seven churches looking specifically at Revelation's letters to Philadelphia and Laodicea. What can these letters tell us about the risen and exalted Jesus and Jesus' relationship with God? Will we discover that Jesus is co-equal with the Father? Or is Jesus still subordinate to God at this stage of early church history? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point is Jesus Speaks to Philadelphia. So we'll read this letter starting in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews, and are not, but lie, I will come and make them bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. That's Revelation 3, verses 7 
through 12. So Jesus reveals himself with a variety of titles and descriptions, and so we're just going to go down the list and talk about them. At the beginning, Jesus reveals himself as he who is holy. So we'll talk about the holiness of Jesus. But in Greek, it is specifically oios, which is the one who is holy or the holy one. Now, the Holy One was a frequent title for God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it was also a title used to describe special human beings, namely those human beings who served in the important purposes of God. For example, Psalm 1610, which is a psalm of David, has the speaker rejoice in that God will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. And this passage was cited by Luke in Acts chapter 2, verse 27, within the Pentecost speech given by Peter. And Peter used Psalm 16 to refer to Jesus as God's Holy One who was not abandoned to the grave and who did not undergo decay. Psalm 106, verse 16, refers to Aaron, the prototypical priest and brother of Moses, as the Holy One of Yahweh. So it could be referred to priest as well. Throughout the book of Daniel, the phrase Holy One refers to heavenly messengers who speak on God's behalf. You could see this, for example, in chapter 413, verse 23, and chapter 8 verse 19. So you get it appearing in both the Aramaic and the Hebrew sections of Daniel. Now the New Testament authors were already accustomed to portraying Jesus as the Holy One. So there's really no development when we see the title used of Jesus in Revelation. So check out what we see in Mark 1.24 where the demons recognize Jesus and they offer Jesus this title. The demons speak in Mark 1.24, and say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So notice Jesus is the Holy One, but he is distinguished from God with this particular title. And even the disciples confess Jesus as the Holy One in John 6, verse 69. They say, quote, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, identifying Jesus as the Holy One and also distinguishing Jesus from God. Jesus being described as the Holy One is not using the title that was given to God. It's understanding Jesus as God's Holy One. Certainly, the Jesus revealed in Revelation, who is dressed in white, who exercises priestly functions, and who wears priestly attire, can understandably be called the Holy One. So it's likely Jesus being described with this title is being portrayed as someone who is carrying out God's unique functions and acting as a priest to God on behalf of God's people. Let's move on. Let's look at the next title. Jesus is also called the One who is True. In Greek, O Alephinos, is better translated as the true one, or the one who is true. The sense of calling someone true 
is to mark this person out as trustworthy and reliable, which is exactly what you would expect from someone who has received the revelation from God in order to communicate that revelation to the churches, as we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, which says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. There are other places in Revelation where the adjective true is used of Jesus. One of these instances will be read later in the podcast, and the other occurrence is in the appearance of Jesus on a white horse in chapter 19 and verse 11, which says, He who sat on it is called faithful and true. By referring to Jesus as a trustworthy, reliable, and true person, Revelation seeks to encourage its readers to listen to him and to obey his words. Now, Jesus is also portrayed in the letter to Philadelphia as one who holds the key of David. Yes, Jesus possesses the key of David. This is actually a messianic image drawn from Isaiah 22, verse 22. Very easy to remember, all twos. And this passage in Isaiah suggests that the one who holds the key of David possessed administrative privileges. In other words, possessing the key of David indicates that the holder possesses the messianic prerogatives belonging to David and to David's descendants. One of the prerogatives belonging to the Davidic Messiah is that he would be the temple builder. In 2 Samuel 7 verse 13, it says that he, the descendant of David, will build a house for my name. He, the messianic king, will build a house for God. And what we see specifically in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia is that Jesus grants access to the temple to his faithful believing community. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about Jesus as the temple builder. It is clear that Jesus portrays himself to the Philadelphian believers as the temple builder because Jesus, using the first person, says, quote, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, end quote. Jesus is telling the faithful conquerors that if they continue to conquer, that Jesus will make these believers pillars, specifically pillars in a temple setting. Now, a pillar, of course, is a vertical beam that supports a temple structure. The practice of referring to key persons as pillars can already be observed in Galatians, written about four decades before the book of Revelation. In Galatians, Paul notes that Peter, James, and John were reputed to be pillars in the Christian community, Galatians 2.9. This, of course, demonstrates that temple imagery is being used of the new covenant people of God. And the same practice is used all over the place in the book of Revelation. Of course, Jesus is quite clear that this temple community of which he is actively partaking in its organization and structure, belongs to God. 
and this God is Jesus's God. So let's look at that particular point. Jesus defines God in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia as his own God. This is one of the clearest takeaways from the letter to Philadelphia. Jesus has a God, which unambiguously distinguishes Jesus from God, and it ranks God above Jesus. Jesus calls God my God four times in this verse, in chapter 3, verse 12. It is almost as if Jesus was repeating this basic Christological fact over and over. Jesus has a God. Jesus has a God. Jesus has a God. Jesus has a God. And Jesus is trustworthy and true. We need to listen to him, and we need to listen to his words. So no matter how exalted Jesus has become in light of his resurrection, ascension, and his investment with God's prerogatives, God is still the God of Jesus. And the two have not been collapsed into a single being, according to the book of Revelation. Now, the promises that Jesus gives to the believers in Philadelphia involves Jesus' name. It's important that we look at the promises that Jesus assures these faithful in Philadelphia. And so let's just go down the list because it's important to keep these things straight in our mind. Number one, the believers will become a stable pillar in Jesus' new temple community. I should footnote this and point out that there were earthquakes that were going on in Philadelphia. And so these citizens of the city had to move out to the countryside because all the buildings were falling down and potentially hurting people. And so when Jesus promises that I will make you a pillar and you're not going to have to go out from this temple any longer, that would be an encouragement to these believers who had to go out from their city because of the instability of their own city structures based on the earthquakes that were taking place in the first century. Okay, enough of that footnote. So, Jesus promises the believers that they will be a stable pillar in his new temple community. Number two, the believers will have the name of Jesus' God written upon them. Three, the believers will have the name of the city, New Jerusalem, written upon them. Four, the believers will have Jesus' new name written upon them. So, as we can see from promises two and four, there are different names for God and Jesus. The promise is that God's name will be written on them and Jesus' name will be written on them. If Jesus was Yahweh in the fullest sense of the word, why would he distinguish the name of his God from Jesus' own name? If Jesus is Yahweh, then Jesus would have Yahweh's name and there would be no need to distinguish the name of God from the name of Jesus. Clearly, God and Jesus have separate names because they are distinct beings. Not just distinct persons, they are distinct beings. There is God and there's Jesus. Now, of course, the act of applying a name to a servant within the ancient world indicated ownership. And within the theology of Revelation, the reader is either marked by God and the Lamb, or they are marked by the beast. You are either a citizen of New Jerusalem, or you are a citizen of Babylon. 
but the primary point is that Jesus distinguishes his name from the name of his God. They are two separate names. All right, that's enough that we get out of the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. Let's move on to our second point, which is Jesus speaks to Laodicea. I'll start in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself and that your shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's Revelation 3, verses 14 through 21. Okay, we have a lot to say about the way that Jesus reveals himself to the Laodiceans. First of all, we have the title, The Amen. As far as an actual noun with a definite article, there is no other reference to, quote, The Amen, end quote, in Scripture anywhere. It's not used of God, and it's not used of Jesus. This is the first occurrence of a title, the Amen, used of anybody. Jesus was well known for ascribing truthfulness and confidence to his teachings and his sayings. And he did so by saying, as the gospel writers record in Greek, Amen, Amen. Of course, this gets translated in our English translations as truly, truly, or verily, verily. But the point is that Jesus is asserting that what he says is truthfully affirmative and that it is spoken in confidence. In fact, when the verb, amen, appears in Hebrew in the hifil form, it actually means to believe what someone says. In short, by describing Jesus with the title, The Amen, Revelation is painting Jesus as a faithful communicator of words, promises, and judgments that can confidently be trusted. Now, Jesus also describes himself as the faithful and true witness. Literally in Greek, it's the faithful and true martyr. We'll come back and talk about those particular points. But the interesting thing is that this title was already used of Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 5, 
when Jesus is first revealed to the readers of Revelation as one of the senders of its letter. As the faithful witness, Jesus is the one who obediently and loyally carried out his commission to witness and testify the message that he was given. Now, when someone is faithful to another, it implies that there is an expectation within a given relationship that calls for fidelity. To whom was Jesus faithful? Answer, Jesus was faithful to his God, whom Jesus identifies as the Father. It is clear in all four gospel accounts that Jesus was a loyal, faithful, and obedient gospel speaker, and that Jesus was loyal to God. And Jesus already called this God, my God, in chapter 3, verse 12. Now, as a witness, Jesus spoke forth the gospel message, namely, the gospel of the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' gospel, the saving good news. And all four gospels, in addition to the book of Acts, confirm that Jesus functioned as a faithful witness specifically by speaking forth the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, I've spoken about this before, but the Greek word translated as witness, which is the Greek word martis, had a clear meaning prior to the writing of the book of Revelation. A martis was someone who spoke about something that they saw or something that they needed to communicate. It also referred to someone who spoke as a witness within a law court setting. One thing that Martis didn't mean prior to the writing of the book of Revelation was someone who died for what they were saying in the modern sense of what we call a martyr. It is actually the contents of the book of Revelation that shifted the definition of the Greek noun martis from referring to someone who merely spoke as a witness to someone who died for what they said. And as soon as we realize that Jesus died for his faithful act of witnessing the gospel of the kingdom, we immediately have to point out that this indicates Jesus' mortality. Death happens to mortals, not to those who are immortal. The Lord God, he is immortal, but Jesus died, meaning that Jesus is not the Lord God. The Lord God had to raise Jesus from the dead. So in short, identifying Jesus as the faithful witness indicates that Jesus demonstrated faithfulness to God as a speaker of the gospel, and Jesus died because of that spoken testimony. Okay, then we move into the title given to Jesus that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, does this mean beginning or does it mean ruler? Question mark. The Greek word archi, which is translated as either beginning or ruler, is used here in chapter 3 and verse 14. 
Now, while both sides of the debate when it comes to Christology tend to be way too eager to jump and to just pick whatever translation best suits their tradition, I do think that an argument exists in favor of translating our key as ruler, and I think that this argument is persuasive. As we have seen with many of the titles that Jesus uses in the letters to the seven churches, Jesus describes himself in ways that he has already described in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. In fact, we just talked about how Jesus is the faithful witness, and that expression is used in Revelation 1 verse 5. Do you know what else we find in Revelation 1 verse 5? The designation that Jesus is the ruler, using the Greek noun archon which is semantically related to our he that we see in our current passage. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that in both Revelation 1.5 and in our current passage, chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus is the faithful witness and he is a ruler. However, there is no designation of Jesus, either in Revelation chapter 1 or anywhere within the book, that indicates him as a beginning or a source of creation. We even have a soft confirmation of reading our he as a ruler when we look at the end of the letter to Laodicea, where Jesus has sat down with the Father on his throne, demonstrating that Jesus shares in God's rule and kingship. Revelation will later call Jesus the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, further demonstrating that he is a ruler. So in sum, we have a variety of reasons, semantically, contextually, and theologically, to confidently translate our he in Revelation 3.14 as ruler of God's creation. And these reasons would obviously suggest that we reject the translation beginning of God's creation as the intended meaning. So let's move on. Let's also talk about the communion that Jesus invites the Laodiceans to experience. Now this is a point that is often missed by English readers of the book of Revelation who just can't see the Greek. When Jesus tells the Laodiceans that he stands at the door knocking in hopes that they will listen to his voice open the door in order that Jesus will come to dine with him. This word for dine is only elsewhere used in the New Testament in context where the Lord's Supper is celebrated and eaten. That is specifically how this word is used in every other occurrence of the New Testament. In other words, Jesus' invitation to eat is not just to have a casual lunch with Jesus but rather to listen to his voice and enter into a deep and meaningful communion with him. In doing so, Jesus hopes that he would become the source of the needs of the Laodiceans and thereby discouraging them from putting their trust in wealth that was likely linked with their accommodation and compromise with the Roman Empire's economics. Now let's also talk about the promises. 
Jesus promises to share his rule with the faithful believers. For the faithful conquerors in Laodicea, Jesus promises that they may sit with him on his throne. Now, throughout Revelation, sitting on a throne is an image and metaphor that conveys active ruling. Clearly, someone who is enthroned is in a position of kingship and rulership. So Jesus is able to share this prerogative of ruling with faithful believers, which, by the way, was the original intention that God gave to Adam in Genesis chapter 1. Now, it's not only that Jesus invites the faithful to share in his role. We also see that God, who is Jesus' father, shared his rule with Jesus, according to Revelation 3.21. Jesus also tells us that he himself conquered and that he was allowed to sit down with his father, whom we know is Jesus' God. Yes, even the God of Jesus has shared his throne with Jesus, indicating that God's kingship, dominion, and rule are the prerogatives that are now invested in the risen and exalted Jesus. So the Jesus revealed in the book of Revelation is one who has been authorized to share in God's rule. And Jesus himself, having been the recipient of such enormous prerogatives, invites the Christians to also conquer so that Jesus may share with them his rule. In conclusion, we have observed that as we read the letters to Philadelphia and Laodicea, we can learn much about the Christology of the book of Revelation. Revelation depicts Jesus dictating to John what needed to be said to these Christian communities in Asia Minor. So the impression is that what is said in the letters is actually coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. First, Jesus portrays himself as holy, indicating a person set aside to fulfill the purposes of God. Since Jesus wears priestly garments, stands in the midst of the temple lampstands, and is clothed in white, the holiness of Jesus strongly suggests a priestly role between God and God's people. Second, Jesus is the true one, indicating that he is trustworthy and reliable. As the authorized bearer of the contents of the book of Revelation that he received from God, Jesus should be trusted in what he says as words to heed and obey. Third, Jesus possesses the key of David, indicating the messianic administrative privileges afforded to the anointed descendant of David, especially the prerogative to build a temple. Fourth, Jesus clearly and unambiguously identifies God as Jesus' God. This creates a clear distinction between God and Jesus, as well as clearly subordinating the risen Jesus from his God. Fifth, Jesus differentiates his name from the name of his God, 
which further proves that Jesus and God are not one and the same being. Sixth, the title Amen is applied to Jesus, further highlighting him as a faithful communicator whose oracles and promises can be trusted. Seventh, Jesus is the faithful and true witness, indicating that Jesus is a loyal and obedient preacher of the gospel who died a martyr's death as a result of that faithful act of witnessing. Eighth, Jesus is, probably, regarded as the ruler of God's creation, which is indicative of the fact that God has shared his rule and kingship with the risen and exalted Jesus. Despite the power of the Roman Empire in the first century AD, Revelation is clear that Jesus is already established as the ruler within God's redemptive reign. Ninth, Jesus invites the recipient conquerors to share a deep and intimate communion with him, which specifically involves an act of response and a willingness to listen to Jesus' voice. Lastly, Jesus promises the faithful that he will share his rule with them in the same manner that Jesus shared in the rule of his father, namely the kingship of his God. God has invested the prerogative of rulership and dominion in the human Jesus. And Jesus wants to share that with the other faithful human beings. Clearly, the Jesus revealed in the letters to the seven churches is appropriately categorized with a high human Christology, while an angelic or Trinitarian Christology is seeming more and more unlikely the further we study Revelation's portrayal of Jesus. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we look at how Revelation combines the images of a lion and a lamb in his portrayal of Jesus' messianic significance. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us. You can support the podcast for free by writing an honest review on iTunes and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, please check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for my producer and editor, Dustin Williams, for his expertise in working on the podcast every single week. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks, take care and be safe.